Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukie, Senior Editor, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. On today's program... So today, I'm very excited to introduce you to a new phone made by Google. Google launches a handful of hardware, including its own branded smartphone, the Pixel. After a series of unfortunate leaks, the phone wasn't a huge surprise in the end, but is there anything new beneath the surface? Even though this event was about hardware, it, it was much more about artificial intelligence. And it's that time of year again. This year's Nobel Prizes are announced, and we hear from Professor Chris Phillips about what the physics prize means for the field. These people have worked for really quite a long time in their area, and they've made some valuable intellectual contributions to solid-state physics. First, though, Google unveiled an array of products at its launch yesterday, including its first own brand smartphone and a brand-new home-bound artificial personal assistant, something we touched on last week. Ludwig Siegela, our technology editor, is here to talk us through Google's plan. Hello, Ludwig. Hi, Ken. Let's talk about the phone first. The big reveal wasn't exactly the first time people had seen the phone, was it? No, it always happens with these announcements. There's leaks, and they're probably planned leaks, and that builds excitement, and headlines, and people like us are writing about it. So, yeah, I think the phones don't excite me as much. They, they look pretty much like the iPhone. Uh, they may be better or worse. I don't know. They're blue instead of pinkish or, or something. So let's talk about something else. So it's not just the phone. There's other devices as well. Yes, they presented a virtual reality headset kind of where you put in your phone and you can do all kinds of things. They had a smart speaker, Google Home, which allows you to kind of use your voice to order something online or play your favorite song. So it was basically a hardware event. And that hardware is important for Google, not necessarily because it wants to become a Huawei. For them, hardware, at least traditionally, was to show what is possible. So with the Pixel phones, it uses the latest version of Android, and they just want to show what is possible with that software. So they want to signal to the industry, if you want to make good high-end phones, that's how they should look like. But it also looks like there's a bigger strategic play here, that they feel like they need to own the connection to the customer, get closer to the customer, and have a brand that's not just simply an ethereal one that people search information for, but there's fewer gatekeepers between them and the customer. That is true, but I don't think that Google's plan is to become a a big maker of hardware. Even though this event was about hardware, it, it was much more about artificial intelligence. So the hardware becomes the delivery mechanism for Google's artificial intelligence, in particular the assistant uh, digital agent. So the same thing you have on your iPhone, the Siri, or Microsoft's Cortana. So these services which you can ask. Will Google's AI be better than the others? It may well be. I mean, you have to keep in mind these agents are as good as the data which they use or make use of to uh, provide the service. And Google has a lot of data. So Google knows what people search for. Google knows how you ask questions and how people ask questions in the U.S. and how people ask questions in Britain, even though it's the same language, but it's, they ask questions differently. So they can, for example, these smart speakers, they can improve them much more and much faster because they just have more data. So I get the idea that everyone wants to sort of apply AI to all the things that they do. But Ludwig, talk me through 
how I'm going to use my phone in, say, four years' time, and why will it be different than what I do today? The question is whether you will use a phone at all. So you may have a smart earplug in your ear that can listen to your voice and you just say, tell me where to go. I, I want to have a, a place in this restaurant booked and so on and so forth. And so these artificial intelligence agents or these agents will listen to that and do stuff for you. So you may not even need the phone. I think a lot of people will want the phone because it has a screen. It's, it's faster if you want to read something, but uh, you don't need to have it. So we're kind of moving into a post device age, where devices actually, you will have them, but they don't play the, the primary role. The, the, the important stuff is, is the artificial intelligence service that they've delivered to you. Great. Ludwig, thank you very much. What do you think about Google's deep dive into the world of hardware? Any thoughts on the new Pixel phone? Join the conversation by emailing us at radio at Next, it's Nobel Prize week, and the announcements are in. We spoke to solid-state physicist Professor Chris Phillips on the line from Imperial College in London to tell us whether he thought the field's prize was well-placed. Well, we're very happy. These, these people have worked for really quite a long time in the area, and they've made some valuable intellectual contributions to solid-state physics. I think this is a scientist's prize, really. You know, some of these prizes are given to people whose work, you know, improves technology or impacts on society. Uh, I don't think this one does that so much, but it's uh, had a great big, a big contribution to our own subject, and we're very pleased to see these people on it. It was widely thought that the physics noble would go to someone connected with the LIGO experiment, which discovered evidence of Einstein's predicted gravitational waves last year. You know, we all think the LIGO experiment is absolutely fantastic. It's, it's just a fantastic piece of science. You know, we never know all of these discussions that are um, taken in complete secrecy, but I suspect it was just timing. I suspect the process had already gone a long way down the lane before the LIGO announcement was made, and they just want time to honor it this time around. I'm a scientist, I shouldn't speculate, but you know, if I were a betting man, I'd certainly bet on the LIGO experiment next year. You may think that the Nobel Prize winners only received their accommodation in the latter years of their lives. But this isn't always the case. Albert Einstein was a mere 42 years of age, and there are those who have won awards far younger. But in recent years, the ages of science Nobel winners have been creeping up. Our data journalist Slavia Chenkova explains. In his last will of 1895, Alfred Nobel wrote that his fortune should endow prizes to those who, during the preceding year, shall have conferred the greatest benefit to mankind. But the committees who select the recipients of Nobel Prizes seem to ignore the preceding year part and often pick discoveries made or books written decades earlier. Partly as a result, winners' ages have been inching steadily upwards in recent years. Since the year 2000, only 8% of those winning prizes in chemistry, physics, and medicine have been under 50, compared with 36% of those who received awards in those subjects in the 20th century. With an average age of 71, this year's winners certainly haven't bucked the trend. Last week, we discussed Elon Musk's plan to start a colony on the Red Planet. The audacious idea has divided opinion among us here on Earth, and the conversation on social media was split too. On Facebook, Mason Meadows said, I applaud Musk for having a vision and using his success and wealth to make it happen. 
He's right, and it's critical we become a multi-planet species. Also on Facebook, Lionel LeJohn agreed, saying, History has proven that whatever man puts his mind to, he eventually does attain. The benefits of this endeavor are, however, enormous and will inevitably transcend space travel. However, for Denis Laberge, who emailed us his concerns, the personal benefits weren't so great. He wrote, quote, People who leave Earth to go to Mars are agreeing to a couple of years of immense psychological hardship, probably not unlike being locked in an overcrowded cell with a few other inmates. Not for me, thanks. If any of you listeners decide to go on the trip with Mr. Musk, you'll have a long time to consider all the arguments floating in your tin can miles above the Earth. Don't forget you can give us feedback, comments, and thoughts about all our content on our Facebook page or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Lastly, AI is heading into our phones, homes, and cars, but it seems to also be taking effect in factories, too. Alberto Moel, a senior analyst at Bernstein Research in Hong Kong, has been looking into factory automation for years. He's here to talk to me about how AI and computing power is making automated machines more efficient and how these improvements could even benefit us further in our homes. Welcome, Alberto. Thank you. So it seems like factory automation is speeding up in ways that we didn't even predict just a year or two ago. Why is that? It looks like the, there's been a convergence of the technology trends, Moore's Law improving, algorithmic development, computing power, networking have all converged, are starting to converge in a way that is allowing for a, a much larger set of possibilities in, in, in automation. One example of that is the Amazon challenge, in which we try to create a robot that picks up things and packs it up. And it seems to have done very well this year as opposed to last year. What happened? Well, there's a contest that Amazon runs to automate the idea of picking stuff off a shelf, which is important for their business. All fulfillment warehouses involve having shelves with stuff. People have to go pick them from the shelf. So if you could automate that picking process, you would eliminate the people or at least speed them up and make them do something more productive as opposed to picking stuff off a shelf. There there has been a reduction in the cost of hardware, which allows the teams to put in extra sensors or extra cameras or extra computing power onto their devices. The algorithms that were initially tried out last year got improved on from year to year. There has been an improvement in the ability to identify objects using machine learning or, or some kind of artificial intelligent techniques, and that's been applied to this to this problem much more effectively this year than last year. Now, one of the interesting things that have held factory automation back is the need for these robots to be really preset in what they actually did, and it means changing things were very expensive and costly to do. But the new technologies allow for learning, but also allows for new flexibility. What does that mean? Well, if you imagine uh, an action you may take, like pick up an item off a table, that is an unconscious reaction almost. You identify the object very quickly, you go and pick it up. For a robot, the robot doesn't know what the object is. It has to identify it. It has a certain limited approach to it. The degrees of freedom, the way it approaches the item are limited. You have to program it. You have to put sensors around it. You have to put safety interlocks because when it's working, you don't want to be putting your hand in front of it because it doesn't know your hand is there. Now, that's the traditional fixed automation approach. The new approach is where the robot itself has some form of self-knowledge, if you will. You can put in a conductive scan. You can put around it sensors. You can put a cameras to it that, such that it identifies items that are not part of its plan and can stop or, 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 or act accordingly or work along with the humans. And so the, this hardware cost that I talk about, this algorithm development, is improving, allowing that to be much more cost-effective year on year. And therefore, these robots are getting loaded with, if you will, bells and whistles that allow that 
to happen cost-effectively and make it a good investment. In fact, the robots are getting endowed with senses. Yes, you could say that. In your research analyses, you point out that this isn't simply just replacing humans, that it's actually doing things that no human being could do. For example, the assembly line that now works seven times faster than a human in terms of loading and unloading components. Where do you see this going? There are arguments for the shift to automation to be labor-enhancing, meaning that people become more productive, but you may need to hire more people. The classic example of the ATM leading to more branches, more physical branches, more economic activity, more people using banking services because of the ATM. Or you can think of it as being really taken out certain labor functions. Uh, There are labor functions that are automatable that are the kinds of labor functions that humans should not perform really. Uh, mindless assembly. That, that is not something humans should really do. But if that's their job, then that job will be lost. The question is whether those people can be retrained, they can move to a different part of the, of the company, can they be trained to manage these processes? That remains to be seen. So there may be some winners and losers overall. Now, the implications for corporate performance are pretty clear. The companies that adopt these technologies will do well, and those that don't may have a problem. What does it mean for global economic competitiveness? I think what it means is that the idea of labor arbitrage goes away, fundamentally. If you think of China as being the low-cost labor shop house of the world, that's not in the future. Labor costs in China are rising to the point that automation in China becomes a feasible idea. And therefore, at that point, you ask yourself, why don't we just automate in our developed market, uh, end market, for example? So I think that takes away the the labor arbitrage argument that's been made. Uh, I've seen it in Chinese companies. Chinese factories are rapidly automating because even at their cost levels, it makes sense to reduce uh, labor inputs. So in terms of competitiveness, it means that companies like China will have to compete in some other way. And I I see they they can do that. I mean, you can see the Chinese government very clearly uh, being aware of trying to move up the value chain, trying to come up with innovation, trying to be create uh, intellectual property, move away from being just uh, the assembly workshop of the world. So, Alberto, before I let you go, what's next? If we've seen automation in the factory, where is it going to go after this? I think that the, the, the process by which factory automation evolves will lead to scale economies in automation in general. It lead to people developing algorithms, developing technologies that could be applied elsewhere. And so I, I am actually very excited about something I don't look at directly, but is very relevant, just things like uh, automation in the home. I'm not talking about sensors in your home. I'm talking about, for example, systems where people who are immobile because they're elderly or handicapped can actually be alone without having to have uh, helper care with machines and systems that can take care of them, can, can help them shop, can help them you know, bathe or, or wash their dishes or, or other activities that they couldn't do themselves. These machines could help them. That would that, be a very big plus, yes. Great. Look, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. Please pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist and print or online. And don't forget to rate our podcasts. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.